We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Get my feet out. Okay, I'm out. Yeah, it looks funny out there. See my glove out there, Jim. Jimmy Boyle, get back in. Okay. Good morning, Gordo. Yes, how are you? How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? By cooperating together in these new realms of infinity. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis, and you're listening to episode 66 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. I recommend listening to episode 65 before you listen to this episode. And now, Jiminy 6 and 7 with Wally Sherall, Tom Stafford, Frank Borman, and Jim Lovell. Rendezvous, Part 2. When we left off last time, it was decided that the name of Jiminy 6 would be changed to Jiminy 6A to distinguish it from the originally planned mission whose objective was to rendezvous with the Agena target vehicle. Gemini 7 would be launched first before Gemini 6A and it would be considered the target vehicle, effectively replacing the Agena. After Gemini 7 lifted off, Gemini 6A would be transferred to the launch pad and prepared to launch as soon as possible. After Gemini 6A rendezvoused with Gemini 7, it would return to Earth before Gemini 7. The Gemini 7 mission would last for 14 days. NASA selected Frank Borman and Jim Lovell to fly Gemini 7, with Ed White and Michael Collins as alternatives. Michael Collins was the first member of the third astronaut class selected in October 1963 to be named to a flight. Now a little background information on the astronauts of Gemini 7. Frank Borman was born in Gary, Indiana. During his childhood, Borman suffered from numerous sinus problems that his father attributed to the weather. Eventually, his father packed up the family and moved to the better climate of Tucson, Arizona, which Borman considers his hometown. He learned to fly at the age of 15. He graduated from Tucson High School, and he received a Bachelor of Science degree from the United States Military Academy at West Point in 1950, where he also served as an Army football manager. Also in 1950, he married Susan Bugby, and they had two sons, Frederick and Edwin. Immediately after he graduated from the Academy, Borman was commissioned in the U.S. Air Force and served with the 44th Fighter Bomber Squadron in the Philippines between 1951 and 1956. His assignment included service as a fighter pilot, an operational pilot, and as an experimental test pilot. He subsequently taught at the Air Force Fighter Weapons School. After earning his master's degree in aeronautical engineering in 1957 at the California Institute of Technology, Borman taught at West Point and at the Air Force Aerospace Research Pilot School. In 1962, he was chosen by NASA to be a member of the second group of astronauts. The other astronaut on Gemini 7 was Jim Lovell. 
He was born in Cleveland, Ohio, but his family moved to Milwaukee, Wisconsin, where he graduated from Juneau High School and became an Eagle Scout. His father died in a car accident when Lovell was young, and for about two years he resided with a relative in Indiana. As a boy, Lovell was interested in rocketry and building flying model rockets. Later, he attended the University of Wisconsin for two years, joining the Alpha Phi Omega fraternity. He continued on to the United States Naval Academy, and after graduating in 1952, he entered the U.S. Navy. He married Marilyn Gerlach that same year, and they had four children, Barbara, James, Susan, and Jeffrey. Upon completion of pilot training, Lovell served at sea, flying F-2H Banshee night fighters. In January 1958, he entered a six-month test pilot training course at what was then the Naval Air Test Center at the Naval Air Station Patuxent River, Maryland, along with Pete Conrad and Wally Sherall. Lovell graduated first in his class. Later that year, Lovell, Conrad, and Sherall became three of 110 military test pilots selected as potential astronaut candidates for Project Mercury. Of course, Sherall went on to become one of the Mercury 7, but Lovell and Conrad failed to make the cut for medical reasons. Lovell's medical issue was a temporarily high belly rubin count in his blood. Since Lovell did not make it into Mercury, he continued for four years at the Naval Air Station as a test pilot and instructor. While at the Naval Air Station, Lovell used the call sign Shaky, a nickname given to him by Pete Conrad. In 1962, when NASA needed a second group of astronauts, Lovell applied again and this time was accepted. Now back to the mission of Gemini 7 and 6A. Late October 1963 was a busy time at Cape Kennedy. Gemini 6 was still on the launch pad after it scrubbed a mission. The focus was now on launching two Gemini spacecraft within a two-week period. Normal methods of operations had to be suspended. From the hardware standpoint, success depended upon the performance of the launch preparation teams. Members of NASA, the Air Force, and aerospace teams met and agreed on the best way to implement the plan. The first step was to get Gemini 6 off the launch pad so Gemini 7 could be put on that pad. In this emergency situation, Aerojet General, the manufacturer of Gemini launch vehicles, came through with procedures for handling the vehicle in a horizontal position, even though they had said earlier it must not be done. The Air Force's aerospace test wing began by taking Gemini 6 down one stage at a time and placing it in bondage storage under plastic cover. On October 29th, the team erected Gemini Launch Vehicle 7 on Pad 19. The Gemini 7 spacecraft work began when the McDonnell Cape team was rounded up to hear about the new mission, which listed tasks for nine hectic days to prepare for Gemini 6A after the Gemini 7 launch. When Gunter Vint saw all the tasks that had to be completed, he said, Oh man, you are crazy! But 
he, like everyone else, tackled the challenges enthusiastically. While the exact schedule details were being pinned down, Spacecraft 6A was secured in a building on Merritt Island. On the positive side, crew training presented no serious problems. Sherall and Stafford were honed and ready to go. They stepped aside while Borman and Lovell flew the simulator, taking only occasional sessions to keep sharp. Rendezvous plans remained unchanged, but Gemini 7's flight plan was altered to a circularized orbit, so Spacecraft 7 would travel in the same path that the Agena would have used. Although Kraft's group had a workable concept for flight control, the operations experts still had a lot of work ahead setting up simultaneous controls for two manned spacecraft. Goddard Space Flight Center, in charge of the tracking network, began altering station layouts to allow voice communications with Gemini 7 and 6A at the same time. Equipment at Goddard was also adjusted to ensure that computer programs for two manned spacecraft could be prepared. Sherall and Stafford wanted to add extravehicular activity to the flight plans, thinking that perhaps Stafford could change places with Lovell in a demonstration of space rescue. But Frank Borman was not receptive to that idea. Borman's goal was a 14-day mission. He wanted nothing to do with any proposal that might threaten it. Borman was quoted as saying, Wally could have all the EVA he wanted, but I wasn't going to open the hatch. End quote. There were real hazards in trying to exchange pilots in mid-space, since the life support hoses would have to be detached and reconnected in a vacuum, leaving the pilots with only the backup system to depend on as they traveled between the two spacecraft. But Sherall and Stafford did not give up and turned to Deputy Director Lowe for help. Lowe knew that Stafford, one of the taller astronauts, sometimes had trouble getting out and back into the spacecraft during zero-G testing. Even the barest chance that this might happen during the mission made the whole idea seem too risky to Lowe. But he passed the crew's wishes on to NASA headquarters. The consensus in the executive offices was that there should be no EVA on Gemini 7 or 6A. Ironically, Spacecraft 6 was the first vehicle to be specifically designed for EVA. And for the original mission of docking with the Agena, Sherall had worked hard to eliminate the EVA, so he and Stafford could focus on rendezvous. Apparently, he had done a good job. Wally later remarked, quote, I wrestled that out of there so well that I couldn't get it back in when we had the delay. End quote. With the EVA issue settled, let's turn our attention toward the Gemini 7 mission. Frank Borman and Jim Lovell had put in long hours getting ready to spend two weeks in space, working directly with the Gemini 4 pilots and talking with the crew of Gemini 5. Borman and Lovell learned much about what to take with them and how to be prepared physically and psychologically. They already knew the spacecraft systems, but they needed to figure out how to live in such confined quarters for so long and still perform useful work. As successful as the preceding missions had been, 
They still wondered if six extra days could be safely added to the flight. On Gemini 4, Ed White and Jim McDivitt had been fatigued. On Gemini 5, Cooper and Conrad had gotten tired and bored. Both crews stressed the impossibility of sleeping alternatively, so Borman and Lovell resolved to sleep and work together. The astronauts and mission planners had learned another lesson from Gemini 4 and 5. Prescribing tasks for assigned times during a flight was pointless, so Borman and Lovell would take off with what was, in essence, a flight plan outline. Experiments and other tasks would be carried out only when the flight controllers and the crew could fit the job to the opportunity. The only pre-scheduled task fell between launch and station keeping, the first four hours of the 330-hour mission. Another innovation that the crew welcomed was adjusting the sleep-eat-work-relax cycle to their more normal, earthbound habits. Borman and Lovell had two work periods each day, coinciding with morning and afternoon in the U.S. Central Standard Time Zone. This schedule also fitted the specialized activities of the three flight control shifts. First shift would execute the flight plan. Second shift would analyze system performance and the supply of consumables, and third shift would keep up with what had been done and plan the next segment of activities. Stowage of food and gear was a special problem on a two-week flight. Unfinished meals and food wrappers could quickly clutter up the spacecraft, as Cooper and Conrad had learned in the eight-day mission. Extra storage space in the small cabin had to be found before the 14-day trip. Jiminy Project Office Deputy Manager Kenneth Kleinknick went with Borman and Lovell to St. Louis where Spacecraft 7 was going through its test phases to help them hunt for more space. The search for an extra garbage dump was successful. Waste paper from their meals could go behind Borman's seat for the first seven days and behind Lovell's for the next seven. After working out procedures, the crew practiced stowing for launch, orbit, and re-entry until they were sure they knew where to put every scrap of paper. Tailoring flight and stowage plans for a 14-day mission was important, but even more significant was a newly tailored spacesuit to make Gemini 7 more livable. In early June 1965, McDonald started a test program to see if astronauts could ride almost suitless in space. Gordon Cooper and Elliot C., wearing standard Air Force flight suits with medical monitoring plugs, helmets wired for Gemini communication fittings, and oxygen masks connected to emergency bottles, flew in the altitude chamber in St. Louis to a simulated height of 36,000 meters, which was near vacuum. Both astronauts were elated over the results, but McDonnell personnel were uneasy. In actual flight, the cabin temperature might go too high. At an MSC McDonnell management meeting the next month, McDonnell was asked to study another possibility. James V. Coriel of the Crew Systems Division had suggested using a lightweight pressure garment similar in operation to a G3C intravehicular suit. Although this soft suit would not allow pilots to complete a mission, 
if the cabin lost oxygen pressure, it would provide them enough margin of safety to get to a recovery area. Here is Coriel describing the suit. Basically, this lightweight suit offers greater mobility and comfort for the crew, which will fly 14 days in space. However, it offers the same protection in any emergency as the standard suit. During the flight of Gemini 7, the crew will remove their lightweight spacesuit and fly in their underwear. Test results at McDonald's showed that the spacecraft environmental system actually operated more efficiently with the suit off, but NASA and McDonald engineers did not like the idea of the crew being so vulnerable. The best way to extinguish a fire in space, for example, was by cabin depressurization, which was out of the question if the men were suitless. And they needed protection if they had to use the ejection seats. Therefore, NASA officials snapped quickly at Coriel's idea for a lightweight suit. This decision in August of 1965 was too late to benefit the crew of Gemini 5, but there was enough time to get the suit ready for Gemini 7. To produce a more comfortable suit, the David Clark Company removed as much corsetry as possible from the 10.7 kilogram Gemini pressure suit. The suit was designed to be removed during flight without requiring too much energy or space. A soft cloth hood, which used zippers as opposed to a neck ring for fastening to the torso portion, replaced the fiberglass shell helmet. The contractor working with MSC's Crew Systems Division managed to cut suit weight by a third, but the 7.3 kilogram suit was still somewhat heavy, in evaluation and training sessions, however, Borman and Lovell found the new garment handy. The soft hood could be zipped open and the complete suit could be removed and laid on the side of the seats without having to be stowed away. If the spacecraft systems were performing properly, the crew would take the suits off after the second day in space. The garments would then be worn only for such critical phases of the mission as rendezvous, re-entry and landing. Use of the lightweight suit, designated G5C, was approved in August. By November, qualification was completed. Here's Jim Lovell commenting on the new suits. We started a new era in, in clothing. It's the first time we uh, took off our suits. Before that, the uh, image of a person in space would always have a big pressure suit on, you know, and he'd be all buttoned up with a visor down. So uh, going around, floating around in your long johns was sort of strange at first because uh, you, uh, you were not following the image of the people you were supposed to follow. The decision to make Gemini 7 the target vehicle for a rendezvous changed the amount of fuel they could spend for experiments. However, Gemini 7 carried more experiments than any other flight in the program. Because it was the last long-duration mission, its medical equipment were particularly important in assessing man's capabilities for the lunar landing program. Of 20 experiments, 8 were medical, a higher ratio than any other Gemini flight. Two of the medical experiments, calcium balance study and in-flight sleep analysis, were better suited to a clinic than a small spacecraft cabin and were viewed with something less than enthusiasm by the crew. 
Even the name of the in-flight electroencephalogram experiment made the astronauts a little nervous. Although it was merely a study of the sleeping habits in Gemini, the EEG was normally used to diagnose subtle disturbances such as epilepsy and brain tumors. But some specialists believe the brain's wave recordings could offer more information and the astronauts were understandably wary of how the results might be interpreted. Changing the name to in-flight sleep analysis solved only half their problem. Since normal hair growth would dislodge the scalp sensors after 48 hours, the information had to be gathered at the worst possible time, the first night when most people have difficulty sleeping in a new environment. Foreman and Lovell also were not enthusiastic about the calcium balance study. It was quite a nuisance because they had to keep a complete record of body intake and waste for nine days before the flight, 14 days during the flight, and four days after the flight. Before and after the mission, a nutritionist from the National Institutes of Health limited the items they could eat and drink and weighed out their meals in grams. Almost a month of this regime did not appeal to the crew. The only other medical experiment making its spaceflight debut was the bioassay of bodily fluids experiment. Its purpose was to study the effects of spaceflight on bodily fluid chemistries that might be affected by physical and mental stress. The experimenters hoped to draw some conclusions about the physiological cost of spaceflight by analysis of urine samples. In categories other than medical, scientific, technological, and defense, only three experiments were being flown for the first time. The other nine were repeated from Gemini 4 and 5. Two of the new experiments were technological an in-flight laser transmitter to be aimed at a laser beam at the White Sands Test Facility in New Mexico to establish optical communications from space, and landmark contrast measurements of selected areas around the world which might be useful to Apollo for guidance and navigation. The third was a defense experiment to determine the value of star occultation measurements for spacecraft navigation. Occultation occurs when one object is hidden by another object that passes between it and the observer. With everything settled, it's now time to move on to the launch. Four years earlier, the chimpanzee Enos had barely completed two orbits of Earth. Now Borman and Lovell were ready to fly for more than 200 during two weeks in space. On December 4, 1965, they entered the spacecraft and settled into their couches. The minutes to launch ticked off with the astronauts checking systems, listening over communication circuits, and waiting to hear the erector go clanking downward. Here's the launch coverage. T-minus 90 seconds and counting. T-minus 90 seconds and counting. As we proceed down to the final moments of the countdown, the launch vehicle, first stage engines, will ignite and build up some 430,000 pounds of thrust. When 77% of this thrust is reached, the launch vehicle is released from the pad. All this takes a matter of seconds, some two and a half to three seconds. As Jiminy, uh, control. One minute and counting. T-minus one minute and counting. Jack King, now we go up to Russ Ward on our observation balcony. 
Jay. We, uh, luckily, luckily the rain has stopped, but it's quite breezy up here where we are right now. We have a beautiful view of the rocket over on pad 19, the umbilical tower next to it. You down into the engine compartment will be open. T-minus 30 seconds and counting. 30 seconds away from launch. There is 25. There is a full cloud cover overhead, but it's a high ceiling. 20. Approaching the dramatic final 10 seconds 15. of the countdown. Quite breezy now. T-minus 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Engine start, we have a liftoff at 30 minutes and about 5 seconds after the hour. There it goes, the orange flame now, Plus clearly seconds. visible, the huge orange cloud of smoke around the launch pad. You can hear the roar from the rocket. There it goes. Slowly climbing. It is now about half a mile high. Rocket now starts the pitch program. Here's the pitch program to put it in the right attitude for a good orbit. It's now out over the Atlantic Ocean, still climbing. A beautiful picture, clearly visible. The bright flame, still visible. Climbing toward that 11,000 foot cloud cover, still climbing. About three miles high now, both astronauts have now released the D-Rank. Now four and a half miles high, a mile downrange. Now moving about 700 The coverage continues at staging. You just heard Jim Lovell shout, We're on our way, Frank. As Jiminy Rose scoured, the booster rolled toward its program launch azimuth of 88.3.6 degrees. With only minor deviations in its powered phase, Jiminy 7 slid smoothly into its planned 160-kilometer keyhole. Shortly after the spacecraft cut loose from its booster, only a little over six minutes from liftoff, Borman wheeled Jiminy 7 around to find the launch vehicle. Two seconds of thrust had been enough for the separation maneuver, and now he fired for five seconds to get into position for station keeping. The afternoon sun glared through the windows, but in less than 30 seconds he saw the booster. The Titan II bounced up and down all over the sky, occasionally eclipsing the view of the sun. For 15 minutes, the crew took turns at formation flying and taking pictures. Station keeping was easy but chasing the tumbling second stage was costing more fuel than Borman liked. 
and at 15 meters he was too close to such unpredictable motion anyway. He fired the spacecraft thrusters to move away. Here's Borman describing it. Borman reports he has the booster in sight. Our initial orbit was 87 by 177 nautical miles. This was very close to what we'd hoped for. As a matter of fact, I think that our launch vehicle was closer to nominal than any other one that's been fired. After insertion, we turned around and thrusted back toward our second stage, and then we station-kept or remained with the booster. Actually, we were about 60 feet away from it for around 20 minutes. About 22 minutes into the flight, we thrusted away from our second stage and then got down to the business of a 14-day long-duration flight. Half an hour into flight, experiments began. Cardiovascular conditioning cuffs were snapped onto Jim Lovell's legs, where they started pulsing. The booster was still in sight with its lights flashing. Borman and Lovell saw some unidentifiable objects in orbit five to six kilometers away. About 7 p.m., they turned from sightseeing to housekeeping, and at 9.30 p.m., they ate their first meal in space. Intermittently, air-to-ground communication dealt with a fuel cell warning light, which blinked on and off. As night fell below, noise from the ground became less frequent, giving the crew a chance to catnap. Borman's suit was warmer than he had expected. He had to turn the control knob to the coldest setting. After breakfast the next day at 9.06 a.m., Capcom told the crew it was time to go to work. Systems reports were run, their physical well-being was discussed, and the day's experiment load was assigned. Some 45 hours into flight, Lovell began removing his suit, a simple action that took more than an hour in such a crowded quarters. At that point, both astronauts had stuffy noses and burning eyes. Borman complained that he was too warm. After Lovell had removed his suit, however, the general cabin environment improved. A debate about suits on or suits off during the flight that had started before the launch of Gemini 7 continued for nearly six days into the mission. Both astronauts had planned to remove their suits after a two-day check of the environmental system. That changed when Mueller got wind of it. He objected strongly, and so did Siemens, who agreed that one crewman should be suited at all times. Either pilot could take his suit off for up to 24 hours, but during launch, rendezvous, and re-entry, both were to be suited. Borman made frequent comments about Lovell's comfort and his own distress. As the hours passed, the rationale of one suit off and one on became even less persuasive. Even sitting with his suit completely unzipped and his gloves off, Borman sweated, while Lovell remained dry. Lovell's first 24 hours unsuited passed, and he elected to sleep suitless a second night. Borman agreed, despite his own discomfort, because Lovell, the larger of the two men, had more trouble getting the suit off and on in the confines of the cabin than he did. Lovell did don some special lightweight flight coveralls, but took them off after 15 minutes because it was just too hot. At 148 hours into the flight, the controllers wanted to get Lovell to put his suit back on and Borman to take his off, so the surgeons could check the effects on both pilots of the suited 
and suitless condition. The crewman wanted to wait until the rendezvous with Gemini 6A had been completed, but Flight Director Kraft insisted. The astronauts complied, and two hours later it was Borman's turn to sit in suitless comfort as Lovell sweltered. The suit question was working its way up the NASA chain of command, as the daily missions evaluation reports became tinged with concern about how alert the crew would be for the coming rendezvous. Mueller asked MSC Medical Director Dr. Charles Berry for a comparative analysis of the two astronauts. Already aware that Gilruth favored suits off, Mueller asked for a poll of other members of the Gemini Design Certification Board. Kennedy Director Kurt Debus, Marshall Director Werner von Braun, and SSD Commander Ben Funk all agreed that the reason for being unsuited outweighed those for being suited. Barry reported that the blood pressure and pulse rates were closer to normal with suits off. The pilots got their wishes and the debates ended. Spacecraft operations continued to proceed efficiently. The crew conducted experiments, evaluated spacecraft systems, and worked, slept, ate, exercised, and rested. Good humor and good spirits prevailed, bolstered by family reports and the preparations for sending Gemini 7 some visitors, the crew of Gemini 6A. Borman expressed some concern about the fuel needed to get into position for the meeting, but four orbital adjustment maneuvers worked well. In a nearly circular orbit of 300 kilometers, Gemini 7's orbital lifetime was now theoretically over 100 days. The friendly target was ready. Thanks for listening to this archive episode of the Space Rocket History Podcast. If you are financially able, please support the podcast by going to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and clicking on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks.